A great salvation requires a new and greater priesthood. Let us pray. Father, we humbly come before your word this morning. Left to our own devices, we would either ignore it, reject it, or treat it lightly. But by your grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, you bring us now to this, your word, that we would hear it and take it as the very word of God for us. And so, Father, we come humbly, depending upon the Holy Spirit to work. I depend upon the Holy Spirit to work in me, to make me faithful, and to speak with clarity. We depend upon the Holy Spirit that we would hear the word of God in our hearts. And so we pray, bless us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, we'll read through verse 14. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham, a portion, a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom things, these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord has descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Many of us grew up listening to Paul Harvey, a master storyteller, and Harvey would tell a story and then he would tell the story behind the story. 
that he had told, concluding, of course, with his trademark saying, and now you know the rest of the story. The author of Hebrews does something similar. To encourage believers in his days, Jewish Christians who are being pressured to forsake Christ and revert to Judaism, the author tells a story about the truth concerning Jesus, that Jesus is superior. We see this in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4 and verse 13. Then in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 14 and following, all the way through chapter, uh, verse 11 of chapter 6, he presents Jesus as the great high priest of a, of a priesthood of a different type and character than that of Aaron's, that is a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And now in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, after a brief break that we considered the last couple of sermons, our author gives us the rest of the story. He gives us the backstory to why it is absolutely necessary for Jesus' priesthood to be of a different type and character than that of Aaron's. And so today we'll consider the identity of Melchizedek and the significance and greatness of his priesthood. So first, who was Melchizedek? I think I've told this story before, but I was given a t-shirt, and on the front of this t-shirt was a picture of John Calvin. And below the picture was John Calvin's name. On the back of the t-shirt were the five points of Calvinism, a very theologically correct t-shirt. And so I wore this shirt one day as I went to the grocery store. And as I was checking out, the young man behind the counter looked at that shirt, looked at that name, and he, he said, John Calvin, who's that dude? Well, we may be asking, Melchizedek, who's that dude? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, and we'll also refer to Genesis 14 as well. Here we find the answer to Melchizedek's identity. The only other place in the Old Testament we find Melchizedek is in Psalm 110. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 refers to Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. And this is based on the account that is given before the passage that Bill read earlier from Genesis 14. Genesis 14, 1 through 16. An alliance of four kings raided the southern region of Judah, the Negev. And they defeated a confederation of five local kings and kingdoms. Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities well known to those who read the Bible, were plundered. And Lot, Abraham's nephew, was taken captive. Upon learning of Lot's capture, Abraham set out to rescue him. He pursued the four-king alliance all the way north to Damascus. He defeated them. 
and he took the spoils of war, not only goods, but also captives. And he recovered Lot and Lot's household. Now, in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24, that Bill read earlier, we find Abraham returning home. He was returning home with the spoils of war. And we find that the king of Sodom met Abraham and requested that, that Abraham give over the people that were taken captive, but Abraham and his men can keep the goods, the spoils of war. We find this in verse 21. But Abraham refused to take anything except what the men had already eaten. And the reason he refused to take the spoils of war was because of an oath that he had made to God. Abraham was also met by another king, Melchizedek. He is described here in Genesis 14 as the king of Salem. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 2, we find Melchizedek being first described by translation, the author says, a king of righteousness, Melech, Hebrew for king, Zedek, Hebrew for righteousness. So he's the king of Sodom, or king of Salem, rather, king of righteousness. Genesis 14, 18 also gives Melchizedek the title, priest of God, most high. And Salem, king of Salem, Salem is considered an ancient name for the city of Jerusalem and means peace. Just a note, look at Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, you'll find that as, as Abraham came and met Melchizedek, that Melchizedek provided bread and wine for the men. There are some who would take this allegorically, some who would take this referring to the sacrament, I think. But the, it's interesting that the author in Hebrews 7 doesn't even mention this detail in Genesis 14. And I think it's best to simply understand that Melchizedek was just simply providing a meal for Abraham and his men. But who's that dude? Who's Melchizedek? The scriptures give us very, very little information about him. But the few details that are given, he's the king of righteousness, first, the author says. He's the king of, of peace. He's also the priest of God most high. That, or that little bit of information about Melchizedek is exactly what God ordained for us to know about him. These few facts are critical to God's purpose for Melchizedek being part of the story of redemptive history. We are given a hint of the purpose of Melchizedek in being a king of righteousness and the king of Salem and a priest because these titles are used of Jesus as well. So Melchizedek is associated with Jesus. And the important question for us is how? 
And that brings us to the next point. Secondly, what is the significance of Melchizedek? We find this in verse 3. When a conference speaker is promoted or a publisher promotes an author, oftentimes a a biographical sketch is given. And of course, in this biographical sketch, the person's credentials, all of their accomplishments, that person's significance is published with the aim of people becoming interested to attend that conference, listen to that speaker, or going out and buying that book and reading that author. The bio of Melchizedek is probably one of the shortest bios that you will ever read. It's brief, but it is a bio that makes us want to know the rest of the story. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3 is a statement of Melchizedek's significance. We might even say if, if there were to be a bio to pique interest in him, this would probably be it. It is it. It's the Word of God. As we read verse 3, we, we may be tempted to, to think of Melchizedek as a Christophany. Now, last week we considered a theophany, that is a physical representation of God. Well, there many, some would take Melchizedek to be a Christophany, a, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. But I would cause us to consider that this is not the case at all. He was not a Christophany. He's a historical figure. He's the king of Salem. And we should take it as at that at face value. But the scant details about Melchizedek, what God willed for us to know about him, has profound theological significance. There's a theological purpose for this scant information about this rather mysterious figure. In verse 3, Melchizedek is not identified as the Son of God, but resembling the Son of God. Thus, the significance of Melchizedek is that he foreshadows Christ. He is a type of Christ to show and point to the realities of Christ and his priesthood. Melchizedek is described in in verse 3 of chapter 7 as having no father or mother, thus no genealogy. He has, in the words of Scripture, no beginning and uh, no end. I mean, he's a historical figure. He has parents. He was born. He has a genealogy. He has a beginning. He has a birth date, and he also has a date of death. For the purposes of God, however, Scripture is silent on these details concerning Melchizedek because his role is to be a type of Christ, a foreshadow of Christ, one who points 
to the realities of Christ and Christ priesthood. The great scholar F.F. Bruce wrote concerning verse 3, I quote, It is not suggested that he was a biological anomaly or an angel in human guise. He is a fitting type of Christ, end quote. Scripture's silence on Melchizedek's birth, death, parents, genealogy have a purpose, and that purpose is to foreshadow the realities of the eternal being of the Son of God. For the Son of God has no beginning, has no end, has no genealogy. Even the the fact that, that Scripture does not given end to Melchizedek's priesthood. In verse 3, he continues a priest forever. Is to foreshadow the fact that in an unqualified way, Christ's priesthood is continual, perpetual. Even now, he is our great high priest at the right hand of the Father. In one brief verse, a brief bio, the author reveals with clarity and theological depth, the significance of Melchizedek. His importance in redemptive history is profoundly significant, for he points to the ultimate great high priest, Jesus, who is a priest forever. And this brings us to the third point. How is Melchizedek's priesthood greater than that of Aaron's. What I'm about to say, do not take as being medical advice. It's just simply my experience in Dr. Bob's dental chair. Sorry, Dr. Bob. You can pay me later. The dental process of crowning teeth includes taking an impression of the tooth to make the crown, prepping the tooth for the crown, installing a temporary crown while the permanent one is being made, and then replacing the temporary with the permanent. The temporary is temporary. That's its purpose. It is inferior and imperfect compared to the permanent, the temporary must be replaced with something that will last. So too was the inferior, imperfect, and temporary Levitical priesthood that was replaced by the perfect, superior, and permanent priesthood of Jesus, his priesthood being after the order of Melchizedek. The greatness of Melchizedek and his priesthood is shown in two ways in Hebrews 7, verses 4 through 10. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. We see this also recorded in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 19. And Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham also in Genesis 14 and verse 20. So the author's argument for the greatness of Melchizedek 
is summarized in this way. The, the Levitical priests were descendants of Abraham. They had a right to take tithes from their brothers who were also descendants of Abraham. We see this in Numbers chapter 18. We also see the author of Hebrews telling us this in chapter 7 and verse 5. Melchizedek, who was presented in Scripture as one without genealogy, is referenced in verse 6, this man who does not have his descent from them. Melchizedek is shown to be superior to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants because he is not recorded in Scripture as being part of Abraham's lineage and because he received a tithe from Abraham and because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Look at verse 7. The author sums it up in this way. The inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, that is to say, Melchizedek. Further, in verses 8 through 10, we read, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, referring to the Levitical priests receiving tithes from their brothers. And then the author says, also in verse 7, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. And that refers to Melchizedek, who is presented in Scripture as one having no beginning and no end, receiving a tithe from mortal men. And so the author appeals to this, this concept of one's future offspring, this, this Hebrew concept or understanding in the Hebrew culture of one's future offsprings being contained in oneself. Levi was Abraham's great-grandson, though Levi was not even born, obviously, when Abraham presented tithes to Melchizedek and was blessed by him. The author, however, views Levi, Abraham's offspring, as giving a tithe to Melchizedek and receiving that blessing from Melchizedek. And his point is to show the inferiority of the Levitical priesthood to the Melchizedekian priesthood. Well, why did the author spend this time speaking about the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood to that of Levi and Aaron? And the answer is given in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 7. The author argues in verse 11 that if the age of perfection, that is the age of fulfillment where God's people would have free access to the throne of grace, just think back at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, where to go boldly before the throne of grace, there our great high priest is. If indeed the Levitical priesthood could provide that, the author says, if the Levitical priesthood had actually inaugurated this perfection, this, this age of perfection, this age of fulfillment, then why is it necessary for Jesus' priesthood to be of a different type and a different order? And we see Jesus' priesthood being of a different type and a different order 
in Psalm 110 verse 4 and also Hebrews 5 verses 1 through 10. And the answer to that question is that the, the Levitical priesthood, as F.F. F. Bruce asserts, was neither designed for nor competent to inaugurate the age of fulfillment. And neither was the law able to bring about the age of fulfillment. In verses 11 and 12, the author shows the Levitical priesthood was instituted under the law, that the priesthood and the law are linked together. We go to a passage like Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, where Paul teaches about the law. And this is what Paul says. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And what Paul is saying there is that by merely observing the law, no one is justified. I want to be clear, the moral law is binding on Christians today, but we need to understand that, that the law was never intended to get us to heaven. It was a temporary guardian until Christ came to uphold it and fulfill it for us. So in Him, we would be considered righteous before the law. The author therefore concludes, so to the Levitical priesthood, which was instituted under the law, it was, the, it was neither designed for nor competent to give us free access to the throne of grace. A greater priesthood, a new priesthood, a perfect priesthood, a permanent priesthood was needed. And in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7, we see the description of this new and greater priesthood. The greater priesthood is not linked to Levi. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. And the author reminds us that, that nowhere in Moses' writings do we find one from the tribe of Judah serving at the altar. Thus, a new and greater priesthood not dependent upon that Levitical lineage or linked to the, or linked to the law in the way the Levitical priesthood was, would do. Only a perfect, superior, and permanent replacement would affect that free access to the throne of grace for God's people. Thus, the stage is set for the author to pronounce the superiority of Jesus' priesthood in verses 15 through 28, which will be our focus next week. Before closing today's passage, <clears throat> I just wanted to bring an application to this text. Are we depending on that which is inferior, imperfect, and temporary? to bring us access to the throne of grace, even to get to heaven itself. 
Are we depending on being a good person? Are we depending on our own personal obedience to the Ten Commandments? Are we depending on our own effort to prove ourselves before God? Are we depending on religion or some religious ritual to gain us access to the throne of grace? Are we depending on our parents' faith or our great-great-grandparents' faith to do that we would have access to the throne of grace? The author of Hebrews encourages us in today's passage to remember a great salvation a great salvation like we have requires a new and greater priesthood. Not something temporary, not something imperfect, not something inferior. Only Jesus, our great high priest, has made a way for us to access the throne of grace. A new and greater priest and a new and greater priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood will not do. Rituals will not do. Religion will not do. Human effort will not do. Being here on Sunday morning, I appreciate, but it will not do. Tithing will not do. These things are part of religious practice, but they are not going to get us into heaven. They will not gain us access to the throne of grace. Only Jesus, the great high priest, who, in Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20, as we read last week, is our steadfast anchor. We read in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And here's the application. May we ever trust Jesus, resting in him as our great high priest, who has made a way for us to access the throne of grace and to go boldly there and find mercy and help in our time of need. And now you know the rest of the story. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we come acknowledging oftentimes our struggle to wholly trust in Jesus. There are so many things that we cling to thinking they are going to give us access to you, make us 
look better to you. And Father, I pray that you would continually show us that it is Jesus who has made a way for us. And in him, we're able to come before you and have access to you, our Heavenly Father. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his priesthood. Thank you that he is interceding for us today. And may we ever cling to him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you take